welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast that celebrates today's historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of nine, soon to be ten, historical novels for adults and teens. Join me and my guest for the next half hour while we talk historical fiction. Writing it, reading it, publishing it, and more with tips about process, pet peeves, and preferences. My guest today is Michelle Cameron, whose book Beyond the Ghetto Gates was published in April by She Writes Press. And as we all know, this has been a challenging season for book launches. Michelle has been doing her best, and I am delighted to be able to give her another boost by having her on this show. Michelle, how are you today? I'm doing well, Suzanne. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. Why don't you uh, give us a little brief rundown of what it's about, what period it's in, that sort of thing. Certainly. So Beyond the Ghetto Gates takes place during the very young General Bonaparte's 1796 and 97 military campaign through Austria, sorry, through Italy, where he was chasing out the Austrians from the country. As he is making his way through Italy, he makes a discovery that the Jews are incarcerated from sundown um, to sunrise behind ghetto gates. He makes this discovery in the city of Ancona, Italy, where the majority of the novel is set. And he decides in a very heroic gesture to send his Jewish soldiers to demolish those ghetto gates. It is also the story of two women. One is the Jewish morale, who is torn between her duty to her family and her love for a very dashing Christian soldier in Napoleon's forces. And the extremely devout Catholic, Francesca, who witnesses a miracle portrait of the Madonna and who is trapped in a abusive marriage with a man who eventually becomes a murderer. Oh my goodness. (laughs) There's not enough drama in this book. (laughs) And yeah, so, so, so it sounds to me like you've really tackled a subject that has a lot of layers to it. And, you know, especially the, the religious, not strife exactly, but I guess it is strife. So how, how, tell us a little bit about why you chose to tackle that particular subject. Sure. So when I was finished writing my first Jewish historical novel, which is The Fruit of Her Hands, that took place during the rise of anti-Semitism in medieval Europe. And there are some pretty horrific scenes in there. So I was particularly looking for a joyous moment in Jewish history. They are not easy to find. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. And so, yeah, so when I was actually reading a nonfiction book, Michael Goldfarb's Emancipation, I discovered this scene with Napoleon. And it just screamed novel to me. And it wasn't anything I had ever come across before. 
And in fact, a lot of people tell me they've never heard of this. So this was the start of doing all of the research and everything else to bring that story to life. It's so interesting. There are so many little, little interstices of history that just haven't, for one reason or another, been included in the history books. And I think, I think that's one of the things that historical fiction does really well. It kind of focuses our attention on those lesser known aspects. And one of, pervasive one, of course, is what women did all during this time. And so, you know, Napoleon is the, the sort of hero who did all this great stuff, but he wasn't so terrific for women, was he? He was definitely not so terrific for women. He was a traditionalist. He thought that women belonged in the home, bringing up children, and he was very much against any woman who tried to claim rights for herself. A really good example of this is his relationship with Madame de Stal, who was a very outspoken author at this point in time. And he at first started simply by, you know, you know, if it were today, he'd have been tweeting at her, very similarly to some of the abusive tweets that we've heard. Since he didn't have that, he was certainly castigating her. And eventually he expelled her from France. So that was the kind of relationship that Napoleon had with women. I mean, with very few exceptions, his own wife, Josephine, seemed to be able to, you know, wrap him around her little finger. But I think that was the only woman in all of his history that was able to do that. And, and yet she, in the end, he divorced her because he wanted to have children. He wanted to establish his own dynasty. So he just, she was older than he was. And so he, he just said, bye-bye <laughs> and married someone else so that he could have children. So yeah, that was pretty bizarre. So, you know, I'm not sure she fared all that well. <laughs> anyway. No, no that, that's very true. And actually in, in the next book, I am going to be conveying the scene because my next book takes place in Napoleon's travels to Egypt and Israel. And I will be conveying the scene where he finds out about some of Josephine's infidelities when he's visiting the pyramid. So I'm really looking forward to writing that one. But yeah. you're right. Um, he did divorce her. She was, you know, very upset about that. But he certainly gave her, a, even doing that, he gave her the house Malmason and he continued her very, very, very generous allowance. So she, you know, she wasn't with him anymore, but she didn't make out that bad. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Well, and what's really interesting, I don't know if you know any of the later history of Malmaison, that J.P. Morgan's daughter lived there during the, the first, you know, she was with Elsie DeWolf and another name I cannot remember, which I will put in the show notes, but Elsie DeWolf and her partner, her lesbian lover, bought it. She was a theater agent, very powerful theater agent in New York. And Anne Morgan met them and became involved. They were a little triumvirate and they had this house that they bought Josephine's house and fixed it up and had parties there and everything and also converted it to a hospital for, for wounded soldiers and things like that. So the house, although it went into disrepair, did have 
another life, which is good. That, that's fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah, it is fascinating. It's one of the books that I thought about writing at one point. So. <laughs> but, you know, you know how it is. So do you have scraps like that, little things that you've picked up where you thought, maybe I should write a book about that, but you never got around to it? I, I have, absolutely. And there are even books that I have written that are still on the shelf, you know, because it's increasingly hard to find a publisher for them. I have one that actually takes place during the Judean exile in Babylon that is really was a passion project for me. And I do hope someday to be able to place it. Yeah, I know. It is a problem. Historical fiction now nowadays seems to be centered mostly on World War II. And, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I think it'll come back. I think that fashions change and we just have to keep plugging away. <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree. It's funny because when my son who works in publishing and I go into bookstores, we'll go over to the historical novel table and we'll say, oh, look, plain, 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 all of those World War II books with the woman standing in the trench coat. But I do see some know some little bits of it possibly turning around I mean certainly the Hamilton craze is helping bring people at least to the American Revolution and there have been some books published in sort of the French Revolution time frame so I'm hopeful that there will be a a lot more interest in that period yes and the thing is that you know it's it's Ultimately, I think readers will drive it. Readers will pick up books they're interested in. And, you know, but, but they have to be out there <laughs> for them to pick them up, which is, which is always a problem. But the other thing is there are so many other paths to publishing these days. Yes. You don't have to. You, yeah, you don't have to. I mean, although, yeah, that would be nice. It's nice if you can get the big contract with one of the big five. But so maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, sure, because I know both you and I are exploring those other paths to publication right now. And it was one of the, the decisions driving me to go with She Writes Press, which is what's called a hybrid press. There, you know, there were a lot of things. I actually had an opportunity to publish this book with a smaller print house. And what I ended up doing is I ordered one of their books and I took those two books around with me and said, which of these two would you pick up in a store? And unilaterally, it was the She Writes Press book because where they are very much like mainstream publishing is in their covers are gorgeous. The uh, production values of the interiors are, are great and they have great distribution and you know even a sales team where they're very different from regular publication is that the author invests in the financing the book and I have to tell you it's not cheap um, it's not cheap at all and I I really hesitated before pulling the trigger on it and I have no idea if if, if I had any inkling, of course, no one had any inkling about the pandemic, if I would have made that decision, because of course, it's harder to reach readers right now, even though things like this are a huge help. But yeah, so the finances are daunting, 
you end up paying for what I call the platform, which is just, you know, the cover design, the interior design, the editorial, and then you pay for printing. So there's a lot that goes into it. And that doesn't even count publicity. So yeah, it's, it's the great thing about She Writes, though, as well, is it's not self-publishing. They're not just picking up anybody who comes along. They do look at the quality of their books. And yeah. actually, one of the really amazing things is they've been in business eight years, and they just noted that they've won about a thousand awards out there, which is amazing. Yeah, and I, Brooke Warner, who's the CEO, is a really impressive person. She's, she's oh. very smart and very, and, and the thing that impresses me about, I'm not with She Writes Press, I hasten, I hasten to add, the, the cost was just too high for me, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth it. But the thing that strikes me about She Writes Press is they, they also establish a really strong community of authors, and they put a lot of support behind their authors. I mean, that doesn't mean paid publicity, but there, there are this kind of organization that is, that really supports their authors. No, that, that's ab absolutely true. And with every new core cohort that comes in, you know, there's a lot of people who've been through the process who are happy to share what they've been through to help the authors who are coming up. Absolutely. So, sure. Michelle, it, it's hard to make a living as an author, and books often don't, you know, show a lot of revenue, but they're really great for getting you out there and for show, demonstrating who you are and what you write. But you're also, you also teach writing. You have a, an organization you're part of. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I'm a director of what is largely a New Jersey-based uh, organization. We have four, five, rather, places where we teach uh, creative writing to students as young as first grade and all the way through adults. We've been doing this for a decade. We just celebrated our 10th anniversary. And, you know, we have... A lot of students have passed through our hands. Some of the adults have managed to publish books and certainly articles and poems and things like that. And we think we fill a gap for the kids, the creativity that they're just not getting in school. Yeah. And that's, and that's, not, to, that's not to sort of denigrate teachers at all. I mean, they have so many other things that they have to do. I can't even imagine being a teacher during this pandemic. No, and I want to absolutely agree with that. Their lives are made very difficult, I think. And they are not able to do some of the creativity. A lot of teachers actually take our classes and say they wish that they had the time to do the types of things that we, we do with the kids. So no, I absolutely agree with you. The, but, but the kids really do miss it, I think. And we have everything from reluctant writers who warm up to it to extremely enthusiastic writers who just don't have that outlet anywhere else. One of the things that I get asked a lot because I write historical fiction is about the research I do. How do I do my research? 
And of course, there's a billion different answers to that. But I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your process, your research process was in writing Beyond the Ghetto Gates. Absolutely. So first of all, I have to say that one of the things, and I, I, I actually say this to my students, one of the things, one of the dangers of being a historical novelist is when you go down that deep, dark hall of research and you're so fascinated by everything you find and you want to just put it all in the manuscript. And so one of the things, cautions that I always say is that it has to serve the story. It's, Absolutely. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. And the other thing, yes, yes. And the other thing, the other thing is that I, I don't know about you, but I don't do all the research before I start to write. Mm. So yeah, no, my my process is three months. I give Mm -hmm. myself three months to do deep dive into research, which in no way is enough for everything that I have to do. And then I start writing and I insist on that again to get out of that rabbit hole. And even as I'm researching during those months, for example, I came across a fascinating bit and I'm like, I'm going to write that scene right now. And so I've got that scene written. But then I start writing in earnest, but you research every day that you're writing, you know, or you leave, you know, notes yesterday. In one of my classes, I have a student who's writing American Revolutionary Mysteries. And so she was talking about a a dead body on the floor of Independence Hall. And she had this note in the middle, find out what the the floor is made of. You know, and (laughs) it it didn't slow her down. She just kept going. You know, but I think you have to use every resource at your disposal. And obviously there are books and I have shelves of them, you know, in addition to haunting libraries. Um, Which we can't do at the moment. No, although New Jersey libraries are actually willing to bring you books out. Oh, right. So I don't think I don't think our local library is doing that yet. We can we can use the online resources, but Mm -hmm. I I don't think they've quite figured out the, you know, and for me, I live in a college town. And because I'm an alum, I use the Smith library resources all the time, and I can't use any of them. And they have things that I just can't get anywhere else. So it's very frustrating. Yeah. No, I know early, early in my career, I worked at Radcliffe College. And so I had rights to Widener. And I remember I was writing the Shakespeare stuff that I wrote at the beginning of my career then. And I remember one day they let me go deep into the bowels of Widener Library under the pavement where they have all of those books to get something that I really needed for the book I was writing. Well, I, you know, I'm, I was spoiled, 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 rotten. And I wish I'd been writing historical fiction back then because it would have been a gold mine, but I, you know, I have a PhD from Yale, so I had all the resources of Yale and Beinecke, plus I taught at Columbia for a, a year, so that is a wonderful library too. Oh, that's, that's and, and I did research in Berlin, Vienna, and Prague, all their state libraries, and I was a Handel scholar, so I got to go to the British library and actually hold Handel manuscripts. Oh, 
It was, yeah, I am a complete library nerd. There's nothing I love better than primary sources, but they're really hard to get a hold of. However, I don't know if you found this when you were doing your research, more and more stuff is actually being digitized. So you can get it online. No, that's, that's true. And it's been a boon. I mean, I remember again, way back when, when I was researching the Shakespeare stuff, uh, they, it would take me a long time to find something very specific. And in the fruit of her hands, I have a wedding feast. And at that point, we were just going on to line. It took me, you know, half an hour to find what I was looking for. So it's a huge difference in terms of research these days. In addition to books and online resources, obviously, I, I love going to museums. I love going to those rooms that they set up so you can get a real feel for the time frame. I really wish that they would let me through the, the velvet ropes, but obviously they won't. You're talking about the mat? <laughs> I am talking about the mat. Oh, yes, I love those rooms. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, they are amazing. And then, I mean, an artwork to a large degree as well. You know, how, what, what are people wearing? What's on the tables? You know, the, 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 all of those exhibitions mean so much. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely all of that as well. So, again, that's part of the three months, but also all the gaps that come into the manuscript. Yes, absolutely. Now, so what does your typical writing day look like? That was so much easier to answer back when I was working full-time at a day job. Because at that point, the only way, and I had a young family at that moment, and so at that point, the only way to fit in time was to get up at 4.30 in the morning, which I did for five years. Then when I came to working for the writer circle, I stopped doing that. And now it's, it's, I have to find time myself. And so a lot of it, in a lot of ways, it's like any other college teacher. We have time off. So I do, I, I do a lot of chunks during those periods. But I'm a huge believer once I've truly embarked on writing, I'm a huge believer in you have to put in at least, you know, 15 minutes, a half hour a day to keep your project at the, you know, top of your mind. Because it's so hard when you drop something and then you come to pick it up again. So I'm very disciplined about getting at least small chunks in every day of writing. I'm a morning person, so I try to get up and do it, even if it's not 4.30 in the morning. I do try to do it first thing when I'm fresh and the writing comes. Now, I have a question for you. Do you use a journal at all? Or do you just work on your projects? I, I just work largely on my projects. So, no, I'm, I know a lot of people, like, swear by morning pages and things like that. That's not me. Yeah, I know. It, we, you know, writers seem to be a little bit split about that. Talking about journaling, I, I got involved with this wonderful organization where I, I now teach workshops locally at a place called Writers in Progress. And they are, one of the big things they, they have are these like three-hour writing generative workshops mm -hmm. where people come and write and there are prompts and things. I was just 
and still am a little bit allergic to writing prompts. <laughs> and, and all these people, they're all like writing journals and there's a teacher who does dream stuff and everything. And, and I think, yeah, that's, that's awesome. But I just, as someone who's just kind of really dug into and written books, 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 it took me a while to sit back and say, and not sort of say, wait, wait, why are they doing this? And realize, well, you know, people have different, <laughs> different ways of achieving what, what they want to achieve. And this is all back to your point about writing every day. Mm -hmm. I started during the pandemic, keeping a journal, mm -hmm. just because, I don't know, it felt like the right thing to do. <laughs> I don't know. But, but it hasn't, doesn't have a lot to do in a direct way with my actual projects. It's more, mm. it's more, that's the writing for as a kind of therapeutic exercise, whereas the, the projects are craft-based. Right, right. And, and yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, no, it's interesting. We, one of the things we did as part of the writer's circle is that we, we, obviously all our classes are virtual at the moment. But we also started adding what we call pop-ups, you know, single session classes, you know, or, or you know, just, just things to help people cope with what's going on. And certainly one of the most popular has been the journaling workshop that we offered. And so that was, was huge. And the woman who, who was running it, you know, talked about how people like Anne Frank, for example, used her her diary to um capture what was happening so i think a lot of people move in that direction and still are in terms of the prompts it's funny i just we've been doing a few virtual library things as well and so just yesterday i have a, a favorite actually a favorite summer course that i teach called spark your creativity and that's i mean i use music and art and poetry and just sort of set people off and it's very generative and no real you know very gentle critique if any critique at all and i love watching people get very excited about it but i'm like you i'm like okay but if somebody played a piece of music for me i'd try to relate it to my project so i'm yeah. also very project focused yes and i do that too i take the writing prompts and they if they happen to fit if one happens to fit into what i'm working on at the time great and sometimes that's really useful too because yes. it can nudge me in a direction that i didn't think i was going to go so so they're definitely useful it's just yeah it, it's just a different way of thinking and now the whole thing about journaling too and here's a distinction and this is something that in my coaching practice, I, I'm working with a number of memoir writers, and mm. a lot of them have kept journals over time, and that, and they're referring back to them for material. And but the difference is, if you're writing a journal, you're not writing for strangers to read. Mm. It's a different process when you're writing a book. Yeah, sure, there's material in there, but you have to change your mindset completely because you're writing something, you have to, to convey enough to your reader that they'll be able to enter into it as opposed to, you know, and, and when, when they get it, it's usually really good and they, they understand that. But so, yeah, and it is freeing. This is the other thing. It is freeing mm -hmm. to write a journal and say, no one's ever going to read this but me. 
Yes. (laughs) Because when you're working on a book, you're always thinking, oh, did I say that right? What's going to happen? You know, you're always conscious, or at least I am always conscious of the reader of of where it's going to go from here. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And I'm about to, I mean, you've done this, I know, but I'm about to embark on a second book with the same characters. And it's fascinating to me, and I've got a couple of students doing the same thing, how much you have to tell your reader about the previous book versus how much you have to just keep going. And I'm, I'm not, I haven't started struggling with that, but I know that that's going to be something that's going to be very interesting, but that is definitely keeping your reader in mind, but the reader who's read the first book and the reader who's only reading the second. Well, yes, and there's two different things here. There's a series which uses sometimes the same characters in different situations, which is what my, my YA historical mysteries are a series. And there, each book has to stand on its own. You, you know, you have to, a reader could come in at any point and they have to know enough and they might want to go back. Hopefully they'd want to go back and read the others. But then there's a trilogy, there's, which is like more like Lord of the Rings. What Tolkien did, he put at the beginning of the second volume, a very concise narrative of what happened enough so that the reader could continue. It's slightly different from a series. Yeah, yeah. no. And I, and I know that my, my book too is going to be more of your your separate books because it will be a reader has to be able to pick it up the second book and then learn enough so yeah that's like i said it's going to be an interesting new thing for me yeah well will you take that book to she writes press as well do you think that's a really good question (laughs) and i don't have an answer for that right now i hear you Uh, A lot has to do with how much I've actually managed, and I hate to be crass about it, but how how much I've actually managed to realize on my investment. I mean, you know, we we both know that, that books often don't earn out, and it was, it was a big investment for me. So if I don't realize that, or, and it's, it's a double-edged sword in a lot of ways, because if I don't realize that, it's going to be even harder to take it to a mainstream publisher. Yeah, yeah I, I hear exactly what you're saying. But, you know, this whole thing of hybrid publishing and self-publishing to a lesser extent, but hybrid publishing, is that I have gotten a much greater understanding of the risks a publisher takes when mm. they publish a book and how much they're putting on the line. You know, because if you're the one who has to absorb that, it's like, whoa, I didn't quite realize that. And then add on top of that, paying the author in advance. Yeah. You know, so, so it's, it's humbling. <laughs> it's humbling to do that. But, but the, the, you know, it's a business and we have to, unless we're independently wealthy, we can't just sort of say, oh, I feel like publishing this book and I'm going to put all this money behind it. Of course, the irony is that one of the things that is that that a publisher like She Writes Press has the sales force and the they they're with the Ingram sort of thing that goes out to bookstores all over the country, right? In the pandemic, 
that's not such an <laughs> advantage because the brick and mortar stores aren't open or, or if they're open, they're open in such a limited way that people can't sort of browse and discover, which is really, and the same thing with libraries. So right, yeah, right. I hope that ends soon. <laughs> Oh, believe me. I, yes, we, I think we all do. No, it's interesting on a couple of notes. My, my son, as I said, works in publishing. He works for Torin Forge, which is Macmillan's sci-fi fantasy imprint. And he's hugely fascinated by the, the statistics he does a lot of statistical analysis for them. I don't know where, I mean, I have a son who's a mathematician and a son who's works in publishing, but does this. And I'm like, I don't know where you guys got it from. <laughs> Not me. Yeah. But, you know, he's noted how much, you know, clearly Amazon has profited from this. And then as you were talking about, Brooke sent an, an email out to uh, her authors and was basically saying, look, it's not been as bad as, as people might think in terms of certainly Amazon sales, as well as library sales. Mm. They seem to have held steady with those at least. But the brick and mortar obviously are a problem and I'm doing my utmost to help the one closest to me by ordering directly from, from, from her and, you know, certainly sending people to, you know, the new bookshop.org, bookshop.org, bookshop.org. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how we survive this. Yes, it is. So I don't want to keep you too much longer, but do you have any words of wisdom that you would give to writers out there at this particular time? You know, it's always hard to, to just try to figure this out on your own. So you were talking about the She Writes community, but there are a lot of commu writing communities out there. I mean, you know, the writer circle is one, the, the one that you work with is another. And my whole writing career started when I started seeking out other writers. And having, you know, coming into a community where people would, would share their experiences and would help me along the way. So that would be my big, my big piece of advice for writers is find a writing community. If you can't get together at the moment in person, I think it, most of these communities are trying to do things via Zoom, try to get things done virtually. So yeah, that, that would be what I would say. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. And I will put links to bookshop.org with Michelle's lovely book, which I'm partway through and absolutely adoring. And also uh, the Writer's Circle, writerscircle.com, is it? The Writer's Circle Workshops.com. Okay, all right. And uh, my own, I'm at SuzanneDunlapEdits.com. That's my book coaching website. And I'll put all the links in the show notes, of course. But thank you so much. And I really, really appreciated this. And it's always fun to talk to you. We need, you know, we need another New York City face-to-face get-together at some we, point. We really do. And yeah. this has been a lot of fun. And, yeah. and 
thanks for embarking on these podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you coming on to this historical fiction podcast where I've had the pleasure of being able to talk to some pretty amazing writers. If you write historical fiction and you're interested in coming on the podcast, shoot me an email at Suzanne, spelled S-U-S-A-N-N-E, at S-U-S-A-N-N-E hyphen D-U-N-L-A-P dot com or Suzanne.Dunlap at gmail.com. Hope to talk to you soon. Thank you.